It's a little after 9.15. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, we've got the, uh, so I guess, Brennan's not here, right? That's the reason. So Brennan's not here, so we have some high school students in with us, so we're going to do a recap of the last section. But as um, for anybody that was here last time that I taught, we did the first part of the Bible and human authorship. And now we're going to wrap that piece up today with the second part. And just as a little context for um, the students that have joined us, we're going through a book called The Bible, God's Inerrant Word by Derek Thomas, who's a Scottish theologian. I think he's, he's Scottish by training or by, uh, um, by birth, but I believe he lives in, in, um, in the States now. But we have about 13 weeks going from everything from the revelation to inspiration to authorship. And then we're going to move into the canon inerrancy of scripture, um, clarity of scripture, interpretation of scripture. So it's all about how to understand how the, the Bible got put together and then the application of the scriptures. And we'll recap the first lesson uh, on human authorship, talking a little bit about inspiration, and then we'll get into breaking down a couple verses in Second Peter because that's really critical to understanding uh, inspiration and human authorship, and then talk a little bit about this business we discussed last week called textual criticism. And I think that'll be really important for students as you're going into college or other individuals that are faced uh, from an apologetic standpoint to try to defend the scriptures, to try to defend our faith, uh, some understanding around that aspect. So um, we'll pray and we'll go ahead and jump into it. So. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, your love, your grace, your sovereignty, and your providence, and all that you do for us, Father. Um, thank you for your son's death and how we can uh, be adopted into your family as firstborn because of that, Father. I just pray that you would just be with us in this discussion. Uh, give me the words to speak that would be true and that would um, uh, be consistent with your scriptures and your desires, Father. And just be with Ryan as he preaches today. Give our um, hearts and minds and ears receptive um, listening uh, to be able to hear that. And may it fall on an open mind and open heart, Father. Uh, be with this discussion and uh, may it be fruitful. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm briefly going to recap the previous lessons. So we started out talking about different types of revelation. Again, this will be a recap from what even we talked about. We have natural and general revelation, which is God speaking through creation. And then there's this business of special revelation, or God speaking into creation. So we kind of started at the 10,000-foot view, and then we're going to funnel it down just a little more to talk about inspiration. And... What's consistent with what we hold to, you know, I think John Pouliot said it great whenever he taught, when you ask a, a group of theologians about inspiration, there may be five in the room, and you're probably going to get about seven different theories on inspiration of Scripture. But what we adhere to is what's called verbal plenary. So verbal not very difficult to understand that, being the very words of Scripture. And plenary, meaning complete, full, the entire body of Scripture. So this view holds that it's inspired in its words as well as its meaning. So verbal plenary altogether, actually, if you look at our bylaws, creeds, confessions, it says in there that we, have, we hold to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. So we're going through the funnel of revelation to inspiration, and these are very high-level topics. Last week, Danny uh, covered the testimony of the Holy Spirit. 
And just one thing that I gleaned from the section and from his notes, when God speaks through the scriptures, he also speaks through the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, Acts 4, 24 through 25, it reads, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And so God in many places through the scripture speaks to the Holy Spirit, uses the Holy Spirit to guide and direct individuals to uh, write and uh, is really poured out onto the pages of scripture. So really to set up our second part of the discussion, we got to recap the two theories that we talked about last time because that does bleed into uh, our discussion today on finishing up human authorship. So, pop quiz for anybody there, do you remember the two types of inspiration we talked about as far as um, scripture goes in human authorship? One of them uh, being uh, something that uh, you might even think that you do with your hands or tinker with toys or machines. Anybody? Yeah, mechanical. Mechanical. Mechanical inspiration. So, mechanical inspiration. So if this is new to the, to the students in the room, mechanical inspiration thinks and notes that the biblical writers were merely passive in the process of inspiration. They were simply the vessels by which God spoke everything into, and it's viewed as the Bible, Bible being directly dictated and entirely by the Spirit to these authors. Now, we have to preface that clearly there are several times in Scripture that happens. Obviously, Moses was on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments directly from God. That is a direct um, revelation, a direct inspiration. In Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there's direct um, dictation. So there are clearly times in Scripture that um, the authors received directly from God the words, um, or directly from God what was being intended. So there are parts of Scripture that that is absolutely true, but this view is saying that every single author, from Moses to Peter to David to Paul to John, everything was dictated directly from the heavens to them. That's what that view is saying, which seems decent, but um, there are some clear um, issues, and, and uh, we'll go through some of that. So that's more of like a direct dictation. Now, again, with that particular caveat that there are certain times in Scripture that that actually happens. So if there's mechanical, then what's the other? And we buy a lot of this food from the grocery store. Organic. Organic, yeah. Organic inspiration. See? See, we can make this fun. You can make this fun. Mechanical and organic inspiration. And organic is something we would be more comfortable adhering to. And what exactly is organic? Or I guess I'll ask this. Do you guys remember what organic inspiration is? It's okay if you don't. This is the belief that the biblical writers were fully involved in the process. So it was directly from God and the human writers. But what is unique about the organic inspiration is that each of these writers had their own distinct intellectual, cultural, linguistic personality traits. Obviously, you look at somebody like Paul, who was very um, uh, focused in his writing, and he was very almost wrote like a, a lawyer, very legal, or, or a, it's sometimes referred to as um, 
uh, the dialectic, the way that he writes. It's very structured, and you have arguments, and you have supporting uh, theses, and then you have um, uh, rebuttals, and you have corollary arguments. So that's the way that Paul writes, versus somebody like John that's very simple writing. And I've got a quote from B.B. Warfield, or, or actually uh, from Louis Burkhoff here in a little bit, I think really sums it up. But this whole process of organic inspiration is saying that the evident circumstances of the time and place of each book and author sort of dictated the way that it was written. So it's um, God and man and using their um, personal, I have terrible handwriting, personal characteristics. So these are the two views. They're, they can be opposing because obviously if you say organic inspiration, that's kind of unnecessary. It's, it's in opposition to the fact that it was, everything was directly dictated. Now, why is this important? We'll get there. But Horton says, Mike Horton, and I think I read this quote last time, but I think it really helps solidify that God sanctifies the natural gifts, the personalities, histories, languages, and cultural inheritance of the biblical writers. These aren't blemishes. They're not obstacles to divine inspiration, but they're the very means that God employs for accommodating his revelation to our creaturely capacity. And I think that's really interesting because, again, we are creatures. We're creatures of the Creator. And so he uses these unique aspects of every individual to get the point across for the cultural relevance of that book. Um, it was very interesting. Beth and I were listening to a, a White Horse Inn, if you guys ever listen to White Horse Inn, and they were talking about creation. And they were talking about the story of creation, the six days of creation. And they were going through different things. Is it, is it uh, a literal six-day creation? Is it the different views around creation? One thing that uh, was talked about was you've got to think about the context for which it was written. It was written to a people that were oppressed. It was written by Moses to a people that were oppressed from the Egyptian oppression. And as they were being freed, there's discussion in there of when God created certain aspects or certain uh, creatures, certain people, certain things, and the uh, philosophy and the polytheistic religion of the time, those were created in an inferior way before man. And so to an oppressed people, looking at those days of creation when the gods of the sun and, the, and everything that the Egyptian individuals were referred to, those were created before man. It was very um, relieving to them to know that these supposed Egyptian gods were created before. And it was a pastoral epistle almost for uh, the way that Moses was writing the days of creation, or that, that God helped Moses write the days of creation. So there are cultural individual differences for every author. It's going to be very different than Paul, who's writing in a very structured way. So I said I had a quote from Louis Burkhoff that sums up nicely these opposing views. Um, he says, the authors of the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles repeatedly refer to their own sources. The messages of the prophets are generally determined by those historical circumstances, and the New Testament epistles have character. The psalmists, think of, think of all of the psalms. The psalmists often sing of their own experiences. Think of David crying out through all the psalms. Sings of their own experiences, of sin, of forgiveness. Alongside the sublime poetry and poetical language of the poets and the prophets, we have the common prose of the historians. Alongside the very pure Hebrew of Isaiah. You go to Daniel. 
In the middle of Daniel, I remember this in my Hebrew class, you get partly through Daniel, and then if you know Hebrew, you're not going to be able to interpret this one section. You know why? That's written in Aramaic. It goes to Aramaic. So you go from the pure Hebrew of Isaiah to the Aramaic-tinted Hebrew of Daniel, and alongside the dialectic style of Paul that I mentioned, the simple language of John. The writers put their own literary productions, their own personal stamp, and the stamp of their times. So Burkhoff concludes by saying, thus the Bible itself testifies to the fact it wasn't mechanically inspired. Because if it was mechanically inspired by direct dictation, what would be the need of having every one of those influences, cultural times, um, perspectives, Paul writing like he does, very simple language of John, etc.? So these are the two opposing views, the two different views. We would adhere more to an organic inspiration rather than a mechanical inspiration. In our frame of reference, if somebody has 2 Peter, we read this last week, but we're going to go back to it this week because, again, it's really critical to the discussion and it's really critical to the overall um, facet of human authorship. So somebody would read 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21, and then we're going to break those down a little bit. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot packed into those couple verses right there that we mentioned. Number one, we mentioned that that testimony of the Holy Spirit, like Danny covered last week, how the Holy Spirit was there to help carry along. And we'll actually talk about the Greek verbs um, as I was studying for this and learning uh, why that's so impactful. <coughs> but if you even back up, number one, you get a lot of comfort by saying that um, you'll do well, or a lot of instruction uh, from Peter here when he says you'll do well to pay attention to a lamp <laughs> in a dark place. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the scriptures can be trusted. If you even go back to 2 Timothy, uh, all scriptures God breathed and useful for reproof, for teaching, etc. Um, until the day dawns, the morning star rises. But critically important for the discussion, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to break this down and dig in a little bit deeper. Um, and Derek Thomas, the author of our little guide here, he notes this section uh, as he's breaking it down as the total absolute sovereignty in human freedom, which seems a little bit oxymoronic because you think of absolute sovereignty from God in human freedom, how does that quite work? But it's like this mysterious um, uh, a blend of God's sovereignty and the ability of human authors to write the scripture. And that's kind of how we have to almost leave the discussion is that there's this beautiful, mysterious um, uh, bond between the sovereignty of God and the ability of human authors to write the scripture. It was inspired uh, directly from God, used by human hands in their own styles, 
carried to the Holy Spirit to create and craft the scriptures as we see it. Now, I know there was a question last week, too, about the canon. That's actually going to be next week's lesson, and come back. If you're tired of hearing me, I'm sorry, but I'm teaching next week's lesson on the canon as well. Um, so, let's break this down, though, this total absolute sovereignty and human freedom. So, first, what is the precise meaning of prophecy? What exactly is Peter talking about for prophecy here? Does that matter? Is it just the illusions of the coming Christ? That's one thing to think. Um, is it more general reference to the Old Testament in its entirety? Because he just says prophecy, and there's really none. The, the context of Peter here in these verses is he's talking about the coming of Christ, the transfiguration. These are the things that, that's being prophesied that he's talking about. But is he referring simply back to the Old Testament in its entirety? Well, irrespective of the definition of prophecy, whatever it's actually referring to, the point being made here, and I like the way that Derek Thomas kind of phrases it, that the prophetic writings are scripture, and what's true about them is true. Why? Because they're scripture. That's the first point that he's making here, is that it's true because it's scripture. Now, these words in here, if you go back and you look at um, produced it's in verse 20, I believe, or 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Okay. So this is where he gets a little more um, critical in his analysis, and he looks at the Greek verbs in here, and I think this is really, really enlightening. So stick with me, and I'm going to try to walk everyone through it. So the Greek verb here is inegko. That doesn't really matter. That's just what the verb is. But what matters is its meaning and the way that it's being used. Uh, this is the one again in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So what's interesting, if you actually back up, and let's read that together, back up to verse 17 here. So we'll go to 2 Peter 1, oops, 2 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21. And I'll read 17 here. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, and it goes on. So it talks about being born. That word, enedko, that same verb for produced, is the same verb in verse 17. When Peter writes, for he received that honor and glory and the voice was born to him. So using that same word for produced, this is really interesting. Peter's really negating, because it's the same verb, and it's used in both of those situations. He's negating one source of prophecy, i.e. it's not from man, but he's using the same word with the same impact when he said it was born of the Holy Spirit, born of, the, of God himself. And it's really, that that's the nuance that you can't really have in English. Whenever you try to interpret these scriptures, born, produced, it sounds similar, but using the same Greek verb brings so much power and context to it that he's trying to send this clear message that it's not born of human hands, born of the God, the Holy Spirit, um, just as, as he says here, which is heavenly, just as the voice which came to Jesus was heavenly. So I thought that was really interesting and impactful to try to unpack these verses. And then finally through these verses, the idea that um, Danny covered last week with the Holy Spirit, the verb used in 21 for being carried along, 
is quite a powerful verb. And it's the same verb in the Greek that's used by Luke when describing how the ship in which Paul and his captors were sailing, this is back in Luke, um, were driven along by the wind when it was caught in a storm. So he's using, again, the same Greek verb here for being carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the same word being carried along by the storm or by the wind. And as Derek Thomas kind of outlines in the book, he says, the emphasis lies upon total sovereignty. These men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're not simply prompted or led, but they're being carried along through their journey, through um, their writing by the Holy Spirit. And so it's just really interesting to use and think about the, the text itself and the verbs that are being utilized and how that can impact our interpretation of those particular aspects. So as Derek Thomas kind of summarizes that, as we can summarize that, what's the, the impact? What does that all mean? Um, what's the end result of this, these verbs and this being carried along, all this business? No scripture is of, of human initiative alone. That's kind of the take-home point, is that it's nothing by human initiative alone. There's several scriptures that point to that, but if you kind of break it down, look in different theories, you can say with the summation of evidence that it's not just of human hands alone. It was uh, by God's sovereignty and providence using the human hands. Human you know words. what's cool about that? Maybe I'm reading too much into it. When you think about First or Second Peter, you know, what, what is... Peter talking about it's about going against false prophets it's mm -hmm. talking about the coming day of the Lord and just looking at that paragraph that we just read it's maybe it's too much but it's foreshadowing what was the prophet prophetic word for and the fact that you're carried along by the Holy Spirit right somewhere we're going yeah mm -hmm. or there's somewhere that the scripture is leading mm -hmm. and it's not <coughs> happenstance it's not mythic uh, mythology it's it's a real place a real thing that we're going to mm -hmm. so that to me is when you look at that just in a piece or even a word carry along it's the whole idea of second Peter of where we're headed yeah and the glory it is I mean if you if you look at it from that context and this this kind of bleeds into the discussion we'll have in a couple weeks on um, the interpretation of scripture there's different ways to interpret scripture like a grammatical historical or a historical redemptive you know what we tend to adhere to the most because from the very beginning of scripture all the way to the very end it's about the revelation and the plan of god's redemptive glory um, for humankind and from the very beginning from genesis 3:15, when it first talks about uh, bruising the head of the serpent all up until um christ's birth birth death and resurrection, I was about to uh, uh, get my words tangled there, his birth, his death, his resurrection, the entirety of scripture, as instructive as it is, and as what we can learn and glean from it, is all about this beautiful story unraveling from the beginning to the end of that, and being carried along through that, in different ways you can look at it, being carried along to a particular point. I think it's a really, a really great point, Dave. So let's make a few points to carry the discussion along. So, <laughs> what? Not the Holy Spirit carried along. Not the Holy Spirit, that's right, to carry our discussion along. I'm going to help carry this discussion through the help of the Holy Spirit, hopefully. Um, so, obviously this is human language. We have human language in here. Um, actually, in the, in the men's theology study, I thought it was really fascinating. We are talking about the adequacy of human language to define things, and it's really interesting when we try to define 
our um, our Creator, who's this infinite uh, being that no human finite individual can wrap our mind around, we still have to use our human words because that's frankly that's all we have. And so there's even there's there's potential limitations to that. But I think we do have to understand that our human language is adequate enough to convey the divine truth. That's one important piece is that it is adequate enough to convey the divine truth because that's what God used. He used human language to convey exactly what he intended to convey through the scriptures. And yes, it was written by human hands, but it was adequate enough to convey the divine truth. You know, to read the scriptures, all the grammatical constructions, the nouns, the verbs, is to hear, as Derek Thomas says, the very voice of God, not simply through the words in some kind of a mystical encounter, but in the very words themselves. Um, which I think is just a, a really great way to put it. I, I think we mentioned this last, last week, but if you, if you look through Scripture, many times throughout Scripture it confirms its own um, utility of Scripture, or it confirms itself. There's use of the Old Testament multitude of times in the New Testament. The Old Testament refers to prophecies that were written in the Old Testament. I think this is a really interesting example. If you look at Matthew 22, um, 41-46, Let's pull that up if you want to get there. Matthew 21, or tw- excuse me, 22, 41 through 46. So the little subsection in my uh, Bible is whose son is the Christ? Um, and Jesus is, is talking uh, through here. Uh, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your feet under excuse me, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> I really like the way that Matthew infuses those types of things. Not only did he ask him, they're not ever gonna ask him again, basically. But what was D.A. Carson made this point. So what, what point was he making here? The verse that, that Jesus is citing, or what Jesus is citing in here, was Psalm 110. So somebody, if you have um, either an ESV or a, uh, a handheld ESV on your phone, go to Psalm 110, and what does it say at the very beginning of Psalm 110? Not even the verse, just the italicized session or section of Psalm 110. Or the superscription, I guess you could say. Before that, like before that, what does it say? A Psalm of David. Okay. Now, why is that important? Why did I make all this business just to point out the Psalm of David? Listen to what D.E. Carson does. I think this is really interesting. He says, what's important to observe is the validity of Jesus' argument in this in John in Matthew that we just read. The validity, validity of that argument depends solely, it depends 100 percent on the assumption that that was a Psalm of David. Because if it wasn't a Psalm of David, this is what D.A. Carson says, if it weren't written by David, then David did not speak of the Messiah as his Lord, while still referring to the my Lord to whom the Lord spoke. So let's say a courier or somebody in his court had composed the Psalm, then my Lord could be interpreted as David himself because it was somebody in David's court or to one of the monarchs who succeeded him. 
So the entirety of Jesus' argument in Matthew is contingent upon the fact that he believes that David wrote that psalm. And that that little superscription in the Bible that says a psalm of David is true. Because if that weren't true, then his entire argument would break down. And again, there's plenty of other times in the scriptures that the scriptures uh, cite other authors and refer to them as scriptures. And I think we talked about this last time, but Peter does it, um, in, or excuse me, Peter does it in 2 Peter. You don't have to go there if you don't want, because I'll read it, but he refers to Paul's letters as scriptures. And it's really important here. Listen to how he does it. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to them, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which is ignorant and unstable, or in which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So again, Peter is referring to Paul's letters as scripture. So in many times throughout the body of our text, throughout the body of scripture, authors refer to other parts of scripture as scripture. And that's really impactful because it's self-authenticating, it's self-verifying itself in scripture. And that's really, really important because these arguments are contingent upon the fact that those scriptures are true. So Sinclair Ferguson, I have a little book that I use to uh, help supplement some of the discussion. I would highly recommend it. Um, it's called From the Mouth of God. He says in this book, the New Testament authors refer to passages and authors in the Old Testament in a way that assumes both their trustworthiness and their absolute reliability. There is no, none, not a one, there's not a single New Testament example of an author that takes the view that there were probably or any, even possibly errors in the scripture. For them, if scripture said it, then God said it, and when he put words into men's mouths, those words could be trusted fully and regarded as completely accurate. So I really like the way that he, he phrases that. Any questions, any comments thus far? Because we're going to get into the, in the last 10-15 uh, minutes, the critical part of this discussion, which is textual criticism. But any questions, comments thus far? Does it all make sense, or am I just glossing over everyone's head? Hopefully not. One thing that is interesting to think about, if Peter is talking about Paul and saying that what he wrote, his, his letters were scripture, mm -hmm. What level of conviction did they have to have in their own hearts and minds that said this is equal to to the scripture that right. everybody else knew as scripture? Mm -hmm. You know, they're just a bunch of guys that are fishing or tackling, you know, whatever they were doing, and then to have that level of conviction that what that letter that was written was scripture—that's astounding. It is astounding to think about, just from a human perspective. Oh, yeah, that letter you just wrote, that's scripture. Mm -hmm. That's convicting. I mean, could, could you guys imagine, I, I used to have to write papers all the time. You guys will have to write plenty of them when you go to college if you decide to go. Could you imagine the weight placed on you if they said this 10-page end-of-term paper is going to be canonized into the Constitution? Something like that. Could you imagine that kind of weight? I mean, that, that's the kind of weight that these guys felt 
whenever they were writing the scripture. I can't imagine that. I mean, it's a great point, Dave, because I can't imagine that level of weight and conviction that you'd have to have to understand that that's actually what's going to happen. That's incredible. It's a great point. Okay. So last week we mentioned this business of textual criticism. If we mention human authors, I think it really, you have to mention this because it's going to come up. Somebody's going to oppose. Um, you're going to hear it in a college course. You're going to hear it in a campus. You're going to hear it on, you know, in, in a critical uh, program or a lecture. We really need to talk about textual criticism. So my disclaimer here, I think Ryan made a very similar disclaimer when he was preaching and he talked about textual criticism. Number one, I'm not a PhD. I don't have a PhD in Greek or Hebrew or biblical studies. I did say a Holiday Inn Express. No. I, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert here. But I did find a really compelling essay that helped make, help you think through these components. And so I'm going to use his four points, his four thesis statements to talk about this. But what exactly are, are we meaning? Textual criticism is this idea that because men wrote words down, and these manuscripts were passed down and down and down over time, that inherently there's going to be errors, scribal errors, there's going to be issues in there. So how do we know that we actually have the original text? How do we know that we actually have the real scriptures? That's this whole business of textual criticism. And this is what we consider that challenge, that the New Testament manuscripts are so riddled with scribal errors and mistakes there's no confident way that we can have any certainty about the words of the original authors because of it being passed down time and time again. There's a, actually, at the school that I went to um, in, for a, a pharmacy school, one of the professors there, his name is Bart Ehrman, and he wrote this book called Misquoting Jesus. And it's this really thick book that I think a lot of religious um, uh, students, or I guess even an intro course, uh, had to read this, and there was this whole business of this entire book of textual criticism. And we'll kind of go through what he was saying through that, but he's one of the proponents of this textual criticism. So Michael Kruger um, wrote an essay in Modern Reformation. I can send it out. I have the PDF if you guys are interested. Let me know. And he has four thesis statements to help us think about rebutting textual criticism. So the first is that we have really good reason to think that the original text is preserved in the overall textual tradition. That's the first. We have a really good reason to think that the original text is preserved. Now, why? Why do we have that good reason? So, I mean, you think about any document of antiquity that's going to be transcribed, there's going to be copies of it. And there's going to be people that have written it and copied it and sent it down and sent it um, from generation to generation from time to time. So as scholars desire to understand how much of any writing has been changed, they have to establish some barometer of truth so if you have more manuscripts that say the same thing, you've, that, that's kind of that, that's a good thing, right? If you have more of one the same thing, that's a good thing. So when it comes, this is actually fascinating, when it comes to the quantity of New Testament manuscripts, does anybody want to take a guess, and don't give me like 10 million, but like, does anybody want to take a guess of how many manuscripts there are just in Greek? Now remember, how all the languages, Latin, Coptic, everything like that, just in Greek, okay? How many copies of the New Testament um, manuscripts do we have? It's not more than 20,000, I'll say that. But 5,000. 5, really close, 5,700. We have 5,700. We should take you to trivia, maybe. <laughs> 5,700 manuscripts 
just in Greek <coughs> alone. Now, if you count the total possession of Latin manuscripts, that totals over 10,000 copies. Then you add thousands more in Coptic, Syriac, Gothic, Ethiopic, Armenian, and other languages. Basically, the point I'm making is we have a ton of copies of the New Testament manuscripts. So, the more the better, um, you actually have uh, more manuscripts to go back and verify and go back to that. So, keep that in mind when we talk about the next point. So, the first one is we have good reason to think the original text is preserved because we have thousands upon thousands of the manuscripts to be able to create a common body of document. So, that's one piece. The second piece is that all these scribal changes that we're talking about, most of them are minor and they're insignificant. So typically, I mean, you think about this, just, you know, if I asked, if I was to copy something and then Beth did, and then you did, if we played that game, I'm sure it's like telephone. It's like playing a telephone game that you say one thing to somebody and by the very end of it, it's going to be different. It's the same with writing. There's going to be some commas. There's going to be punctuation. There's going to be word misspellings, things like that. These minor run-of-the-mill scribal slips, as Michael Kruger says, are anticipated in any document of antiquity. I don't care if it's New Testament, if it's, you know, Greek philosophers that's being copied, any of those documents of antiquity, you would expect some of these scribal slips. Example. Where did the Dead Sea Scrolls fit into all this? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found... Um, I'm trying to think where they do fit in into tech. I, I think they're part of the body of those um, Greek manuscripts that were found that add to those like 5,700. Don't I'll have to double check myself. Or you might know Sheldon if you know. No, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I believe Dead Sea Scrolls contain sections of the Old Testament, like Isaiah. In Greek, right? No? But they were very old. Okay. They were way older than any. These copies, the 5,700 copies we have, the old Greek copies, we know how old they were. This would be like finding one even older. That's and, right. And then you could see this exact point, mm -hmm. that this really much older one mm -hmm. was essentially the same mm -hmm. as the current ones. That's right. To this, they were looking at, they were excited, it was exciting for this exact reason, that, that the transcription of the reproduction over the years by hand had been faithful mm -hmm. and, and had been accurate. Yeah. accurate. I'm just thinking how hard that is because today, what do you do? You forward an email. <laughs> simple. It's going to be exactly the original yeah. because it was a forwarded unless you change something in there. But to do it from you know, quill and, you know. There was no printing press at that that's point. Crazy. <laughs> it is. And then, so that, that's a great question. Thanks, Sheldon, for adding that in because I wasn't um, exactly sure about um, that component. That's I think that's true. So. All right. Well, if you think it's true, it's you're being carried along it's by the Holy Bible. Spirit here, sir. I want to look it up on the worldwide, worldwide web. <laughs> Dr. Google. <laughs> Dr. Google PhD. Okay, so but you think about these, these scribal slips. The, you know, I think of, of amplification. That was a word that kind of came to mind. The more copies we have... Guess what? The more scribal errors you're going to anticipate because we have more copies. It's simply a fact, the fact that we have thousands upon thousands. Guess what? We're going to have thousands upon thousands of scribal errors because we have thousands upon thousands of copies of manuscripts. So it doesn't really add up that because there's hundreds of thousands of errors that these scriptures can't be authoritative. Well, you've got thousands and thousands. Are you okay? But also you can, you can use... You can compare, no, no, you have no, 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 independently sourced mm -hmm. thousands of copies, 
then you have a way of forming, and you know there's misspelled errors, like right. a comma here and that, you know. Mm -hmm. That that gives you a basis. It does. To, to confirm that there, you know, the consensus of those is a good is a good estimation of the original. Yeah. Especially if all the you know the, the changes are all the differences. Are Absolutely. Right Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. All right, I do. I know. I know. I need to probably wrap up. This one I think is really important. So somebody pull up First John five, verses seven through eight. And does anybody have a King James in here? If not, that's okay. I've, I'll pull up. I've got the verse here just in case not. What was it? First John. First John five seven through eight. And you wonder King James. Well, I have the King. Well, I've got the King James. But let's have someone read another translation because this is where. You might say, uh-oh, what are we going to do with this? Five, seven, first John 5. 7 through 8. <clears throat> For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Okay. Do you have the King James, Dave? Or no. I got it right here. Okay. So you, you said... For the three to testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, right? Yes. Okay. Here's how the King James reads, 5, 7 through 8. For there are three that testify, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Uh-oh. We have a verse that has a complete omission of a particular text. Now, what in the world are we going to do with that? The latest manuscripts of the Vulgate testify in heaven, the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three <coughs> that testify on earth, the not found in any Greek manuscript That's before it. the 14th century. That's it. So the point that Michael Kruger here is making of the small variations in the scripture that are significant, like this, that have complete changes, we can determine with a reasonable degree of certainty and authority, which one is in the original text. And just as Dave said, of the thousands of manuscripts, only eight, eight, count them, contain that variant that was read in the, new, in, in the King James. How it made its way into the King James? The King James was primarily interpreted from the Textus Receptus, which I believe is a Latin, um, uh, a Latin manuscript. And therefore, it made it into the King James because that variant was present in that particular uh, Latin manuscript, but it wasn't present in most of the Greek manuscripts. Um, and so the text critical evidence says that this is not original to John's epistle, and so therefore in these translations it wasn't included. So the point being, it doesn't necessarily change the overall intent of the New Testament scripture, but we know with some reasonable authority that that particular variant wasn't present, and so therefore it's not going to be in this particular translation. But this is also, um, there's other ones as well, like in Mark, um, and as Michael Kruger says, the remaining number of truly unresolved variants are really few, and they're not material to the story of the New Testament or to the teaching. That would be a really interesting study. Is There are differences mm -hmm. between different versions, between all these different manuscripts. They're minor. So at what point does it become material? Mm -hmm. And are there any such things that are material that would then say, well, I'm not believing in Jesus anymore because... That, that is what Bart Ehrman says. Yeah. That is the, that's the whole 
presupposition of the textual criticism argument is that there are present, and he says enough, but Michael Kruger says there's not enough to to undermine the authority of Scripture, undermine what's present in, in the body of Scripture. Um, the other one is Mark 141, because some manuscripts, when Jesus sees the leper, some manuscripts say that he's filled with compassion, some say he's filled with anger. And there's not enough to say which one is original. There's enough variants present in all the different manuscripts to say we don't really know which one is the original. But However, his point is so elegant, he's like, we clearly see that either reading, it doesn't matter if you read it as anger or you read it as compassion, it's consistent with the teaching of Scripture because Jesus was probably expressing some righteous indignation at the ravages of sin. That's how he quoted it in here. I.e., he was, he was unimpressed and, and angry with natural sin and the impact that it had on the world, i.e., on this leper. Like, this guy would not be a leper if it wasn't for natural original sin. And it actually fits well in the rest of context of Mark when he was angered in Mark 3, 5 with the Pharisees. So if you want to, if, if, if it was read into that manuscript as angered, sure, that's great because it fits with the general tone of the way that Jesus is in, that, in the rest of Mark's manuscript. And so at the end of, I'll read this quote as we wrap up because I think this really does summarize in a nutshell textual criticism. And from Michael Kruger in his essay, he says, At the end of misquoting Jesus, Ehrman reveals the core theological premise behind the way he's thinking. If God really wanted people to have his actual words, surely he would have just miraculously preserved those words just as he's miraculously inspired them in the first place. In other words, he's saying that if God really inspired the New Testament, there wouldn't be scribal errors, there wouldn't be these variations, etc. But does inspiration really require that once the books of the Bible were written, that God would miraculously guarantee that no one would ever write it down incorrectly. There's no need for that. Are we really to believe, are we really to believe that inspiration demands that no adult, child, scribe, scholar, no one would ever write down a passage of scripture where a word was left out for the entire course of human history? That's preposterous to say that that wouldn't happen. It seems clear that Ehrman has investigated the New Testament documents with an a priori conviction that inspiration requires zero scribal variations, a standard that could never be met in the real historical world of the first century. I.e., his point, he had a conviction already and he was setting out to prove his conviction. That's the point of that. And certainly, that's a, um, that's a rebuttal to textual criticism, but I think if you look at the compelling evidence through that, um, and looking at those four thesis statements, I think you can make a compelling argument against that of textual criticism. So I think I'll end by saying that God's providence overall superintended the process of compiling, of editing, and preserving the text, which was given by the miracle of inspiration. I think the scriptures that we've read through 2 Peter, through 2 Timothy, that all God or all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. I think we can rely on that and rely that the scriptures are authoritative and even though written by human hands are uh, directly inspired by God. So, uh, Sheldon, you want to close this in prayer? Thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your great grace and mercy toward us. Uh, thank you especially now for your word, mm -hmm. for those who have preserved it for us uh, by the power of your spirit over the years so that we have uh, confidence in, uh, in 
your word as we hold it today. Thank you for um, the real confidence that you give us in this through your Holy Spirit. Uh, and we pray that you would uh, continue to draw us to yourself that way. Thank you for this time here this morning to study together and for the time to come here to worship together. Pray that you would be glorified and that we would be drawn to you uh, during that time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.